Welcome to Rooftop Church. This podcast is part of our Sunday sermon series, where each week we dive into the Word of God and the powerful message of Christ. Uh, So often, the Christian community or the church doesn't really say much about sex except don't. I think me, uh, having grown up in the, in the context of church in my earlier years, uh, that was more of the prevalent message that when the topic, if at all, even came up, first of all, it's a taboo topic, so everyone's kind of hush-hush about it, and when, it, when the topic does come up, it's always uh, with a message of, like, don't. So it's like a lot of negative connotation, a lot of, like, um, a message and um, usually the feelings associated with like shame, guilt, and uh, even in a way like um, being restricted, right? So um, for me, as I share this morning, I can only come from my own perspective and what I've learned uh, by going through what I had gone through and also reading and rereading what the Bible conveys over the many years. And, and, and I hope to just, for you to have a healthier perspective, I hope you and I to be able to stand on the truth of God and to accept um, what the, the Word of God says. And the big point that I want to make in the first and foremost is that sex is good. Say with me, sex is good. Some of you guys struggle to even say the word sex in the context of the church. So we, we're going to just make sure that uh, we want to have a healthier view of all this. Genesis 1, and cha- uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, if you look into the creation account of mankind and, and this universe, and we are told that we are created in the image of God. Remember that in Genesis chapter 1, God created man, and God created man in the image of God. And if you look at verse 28, we see the first biblical mandate from God to the mankind, meaning this was the first time that God um, initiated The first time that God spoke with Adam, it was in the command form, and that command included, or the command was all about, hey, be fruitful and multiply. You guys know that that God is talking about uh, populating the earth, populating this universe that God had created, and that was the first order given to our first human, which was Adam. And how do, we fruit, how do we become fruitful? How do we multiply? Well, guys, you guys know that there's only one way to do this, right? You're not planting seeds in the Garden of Eden. Um, that, that call, when God told Adam, hey, be fruitful and multiply, God wasn't giving this, like, the call of a lifetime of a farmer, uh, that Adam wasn't going around and planting seeds all over. And there's really one way to do this. In that, already essentially the act of sex is deemed and was created and designed by God as something very, very good. And I might say, uh, I'll bring that up later, okay? And then we see that the man and his wife were both naked and had no shame. So you guys know that um, Adam went through a phase where I think there was some kind of grievances, there was some kind of lack, and, and God no, took note of that, and God says, you know what, it's better that you have a helpful or suitable helper. So he puts Adam to sleep, and God created a woman, and now they became one. And so 
when Adam and Eve were running around in the Garden of Eden, what, what, uh, what epitomizes their experiences in the Garden of Eden? Well, the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve were naked, and they were not ashamed. And that's a very important for you, uh, fact for you and I to recognize that nakedness, which is a pit, um, the greatest symbol of intimacy between humans, which I think, Nakedness is a symbol of intimacy with each other. Not only that, nakedness, human nakedness, was uh, symbolizing the nakedness between God and us. Garden of Eden, which represented perfection in a way that what well, nakedness was not shameful, nakedness was natural, it was not something to be hidden, right? So I want you guys to understand that, um, understand that we, as the humanity, we were sexual before we were sinful. Does that make sense? Our nakedness and our nakedness without shame precedes our shamefulness. And this is really important fact for us to understand because when we talk about sex, when we explore, when we even think about it, I mean, normally, like, there's less, less eye contact. There's, like, there's, there's an element of, like, hush-hush. Like, I know I, some of you guys are feeling uncomfortable. It's like, I, Scott, you've said a, you said that word way too many times, and I'm feeling uncomfortable. Well, that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. We, we, you and I need to understand that sex by creation and God's intent and purposes from the very beginning, this was a very good thing. You and I were created, or not you and I, man and woman were created naked, and they felt no shame. And I think it's important for us to return to that place and understand the biblical idea and notion of what sex is. And that's the big point, number one, that I want to make, that sex is good. The second point that you and I need to understand is that sex is powerful. Say with me, sex is powerful. Yes, God did declare sex to be good. And to understand, to experience sexuality is also good. And even to struggle with sexual temptations, I think that's realistic. And I also, I also don't think that's a bad thing as well. Understand, temptation and, our, and sin are two different things. They are not the same thing. Remember, Jesus was tempted in many ways. According to the writer of Hebrews, Jesus was tempted in every way possible. If at all, in your journey of faith with God, if you're ever tempted sexually, guess what? It's a common temptation that many people struggle with. So being sexual isn't a bad thing. But the Bible also does tell us that sex is very powerful. I'm going to infer to refer to Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 and 23 and 24. It says, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. What a, what a, like a romantic, what a gangster line from Adam. Referring to his own wife, said, God, thank you for this gift of another life. Thank you for giving me woman. Now, this is the bone of my bones, this is my flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And that is why a man leaves his father and a mother, and he is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. 
That word one flesh is very important. Now we're talking about no longer are we talking about two different creations. No longer are we talking about two separate entities in a man and woman. When we talk about husband and wife, when we talk about this godly union and holy union, the the way Bible describes that oneness is one flesh. It literally becomes a representation of the oneness of God. If you read through the book of Genesis, every time the word God appears, not Yahweh, the, the, the unspoken, unwritten, but the holy word Yahweh, every time God is written in the, in the Hebrew Bible, it is referred to as Elohim. Elohim in the Hebrew language is a plural form of one God. This is why it's really unique. So in that triune God, and and every believer and follower of God assumed that God was, uh, 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 we were talking about Trinity a few weeks back. It's really describing the uniqueness, three different personalities of one God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three different relational beings, yet somehow uniquely, Hard to understand, but that three personalities also one being. Inseparable. You cannot talk about God highlighting without highlighting the other two. You cannot talk about the Father, God, without talking about the Son, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. In the book of Leviticus, when they talk about God being this one, there's one God, right? That one is the same word described in Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, when we're talking about the union of man and wife, when they become one, one flesh. It's the same word. Guys, think with me now. How is husband and wife ever deemed as one? From the very beginning, when we talk about one flesh, it was through the physical act of sex. So first of all, sex is good. Sex is powerful because it literally represents that. Now two flesh are one united. Through that physical act, now we're no longer talking about just a physical union. We're talking about emotional, psychological. What is it? What else is there? Spiritual. We're talking about just now, you cannot separate the two. You become united. You become bonded. How many guys know what Gorilla Glue is? I know, Crazy Glue, okay, you don't have to be shy. Crazy Glue is kind of the green and yellow, that's kind of the old. There's a next level glue that you guys should use. It's called Gorilla Glue. I never knew about it, I went to Lowe's. It was, you know, I don't usually buy expensive stuff, but I needed to put together, I think it was like my, my kid's bed was like falling apart, so I need to, like, I need to guarantee that it like glued forever. So I knew, soup, they had crazy glue, but I overpaid almost twice as much, but I got Gorilla Glue. I needed to be sure that this was not coming undone. You guys know me, I'm not a very handy person. I should not be allowed to handle Gorilla Glue. But as I was attempting to fix something, 
little bit of glue got on my fingers. And immediately I knew, because when you touch these intense glue, you could feel the temperature going up. It's really hot. It's really hot. So um, it was my middle finger and my thumb stuck together like this. And I knew the whole time, and then like you're playing the ultimate game of chicken. Do I do this now or do I wait when it dries? And then, then, like you're thinking, but by the time I had decided it was already too late. And I was attempting to pull apart. I saw my finger, the skin of my fingers stretch way too much for my comfort. And at that point, I knew I wasn't going to live the rest of my life like this. <laughs> I wasn't going to greet my friends and my God, go around like, hey, man, let's go. But at that point, you have to make the decision. So you pull apart, you pull apart, and I got a, um, what do you call that, the, the box cutter? Because I wanted to make this a process as, I don't know, maybe I lacked the wisdom. Maybe I shouldn't have gone for that. My reasoning was that I pull apart, pull apart. If I put a blade thin enough in between, it was easier for me to slice. Well, you guys know that that wasn't the brightest idea. So I was just pulling, pulling, praying, praying, pulling, pulling. I said, God, I'm just going to go for it. And by the time, and I, I, I did manage to separate. So my fingers separate, but it came at a cost. This, the outer layer of skin of both my fingers completely fell apart. And I was left with the pink portion. Look at I'm not, I'm not staring at the raw skin. It wasn't bleeding much, but the, I mean, it was just one layer, right? Painful. It's okay. I, I've recovered now. <laughs> I, think, I think that's so telling of what the Bible says Man and woman, we become one flesh. You're not supposed to separate. You become inseparable. I think that's the power of becoming one flesh. Sex is the vehicle which God chooses for that oneness to happen. And this idea of marriage, the idea of this marital relationship is also highlighted in the New Testament. Does Jesus not say what God has put together in bringing man and woman as husband and wife when God, or, uh, or, uh, what is it? When, when God orchestrates that holy union? This is why Jesus said, what, let no man separate. Because what God is holding, uh, uh, um, what's an adjective, adverb form of holy? When God in his holy nature brings the, the two humans together, there's so much power that if any man to separate, by the time it's separated, it is no longer what, he, what it was intended. So this idea, when you bond with something, you cannot separate without leaving something behind. <laughs> yes, I love it. <laughs> and the picture that we get from the scriptures is that this isn't just a body issue, but you literally become bonded with another person. So when you have sex with people, with different people, this is what I think is happening. 
you bond together, and you separate, and you rip away, and you bond with another, then you rip away again, and you bond with another, and you rip away. You're literally cutting your soul into pieces. You're putting not on your bodies at the, at the risk and the cost of being damaged, but also your being, your heart, your soul, your spirit are also affected. This is why lurking behind the New Testament teaching on sex is the only thing strong enough to handle this kind of covenant, only thing that is strong enough to handle this the physical activity is the covenant between two people made before God in the context of marriage. And God declares early on this physical act of sex outside the union of marriage, God says, that is not right. I do not condone it. And even through the Old Testament times, that physical act is deemed as immoral, if not practiced and seen, evidenced in the context of marriage. Sexual intimacy was designed to affirm and reinforce a special relationship between husband and wife. Let's remember two important facts. So sex is good. Do we believe that now? You guys believe that? Sex is good. Also, sex is powerful. And God is clear from early on. Make sure that sex is evident only in the context of marital union. And whether we like it or not, that was the command from early on. But we have a problem with this, do we not? First of all, we are rebellious nature. We like to do our own things. We like to call our, what, what's the term? We, I wanna, I, I'm a guy, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the person that call, likes to call his own shots. So we like to call our own shots too, right? But isn't it funny that God declared from early on that sex is good, but sex is also powerful. Be careful what you do with it because it's very powerful. It's funny that how easily we disregard the warnings of God. Guys, we have no problem when an electrician comes to our house and going through the saying, hey, guys, there's like live, I don't even know the terms. There's like, it's dangerous. Don't, don't let, you know, always shut the power off outside. Make sure we have no problem not going to the open socket with a metal fork in our hand because we understand the dangers and the cost if we were to ever do that. We understand the danger of on rainy days, it's raining outside right now, on not to exceed the speed limit. Because enough people have suffered the consequences of driving fast on rainy days. Yet when it comes to this warning from God, we have no problem listening to the CHP. It's CHP, right? Not CPA, CHP. We have no problem listening to the, the electricians. But why is it that when God says, Hey, do not. We struggle. We fight. 
Let me go back to our main passage today. What is Paul saying? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is referring to the Genesis account. He actually quotes the verse which I just read to you, becoming a, to a man and woman becoming one flesh. And Paul is saying this in verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. See, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth because the leaders in the uh, church leaders of a Corinthian church were saying, hey, Paul, what do we do? This is a church that Paul planted early on. Corinth was a very prominent city in that world. But they were having problems because people were doing whatever they were, wanted to do. It was a rich city. There was a lot of commerce. Culturally, it was very rich as well because, because it, had a, it had a port and a lot of different cultures were coming in. And at that time, that they thought and that people were placing their values and their decisions above that of God. So they created a city. They put a temple right in the middle of the city. They hired and, and, and allowed the temple prostitutes to work all throughout the day, meaning men throughout the day would go to the temple, have sexual intercourse with the temple prostitutes, and all of this was going on. And the leaders of the churches are now writing to Paul, say, Paul, what do I do? What do we do? This is going on. So Paul is writing as a reminder to them, guys, don't. Understand that you are created for the union of God. Your body is not to be used up for immoral things. Understand that every time that you engage in these acts, you are putting yourself in union with the prostitute. And Paul is reminding them. Paul is saying, hey, your body is actually preserved for the Lord. You can't just do whatever it is. Paul is reminding God, Paul is reminding them, this is not a body issue. We're not just talking about physical activities because every time you do this, something's happening in your heart. So Paul goes on to say, literally now he's explaining, your body is a temple of God. Paul had to use that language. Because they weren't getting it. They thought, well, it's a Gnosticism, right? They thought body, soul, and mind were completely different things. I will believe in God. I will worship God with my heart. But my body, well, it's different. It was a popular Greek thought and philosophy back in the days. And Paul is not reminding them, no, your body, your heart, your mind, your soul, all of those things now belong to God. You are the temple of God. The Spirit of God will and must dwell in you. And Paul says three things. Your body is destined for eternal resurrection. So stop running into the ground because you need to preserve it because you're going to be represented. You're going to be presented before the holy God when you are resurrected. So Paul reminds them, your body is going to be resurrected. Second, he says, your body is a member of Christ himself. And I love that Paul felt the need to spell it out. I know that I needed to be spelled out of things, right? 
I need to be told clearly. Paul says, you are literally a member of Christ. He's the head, you're a body. I don't care. You could be the shoulder, you could be the chest. Some of you guys are the armpits and the toes. I don't care. But he reminds them, you belong to Christ. Why does he say that? You and Christ are one. You are inseparable. Third, it says, you're not your own. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. You're merely occupying this space temporarily because one day you're going to be represented before God. Are you with me, guys? So sex is powerful. Sex is good. Sex is powerful. But we have to be careful. Let me define what immorality is. So when Paul talks about, when the New Testament talks about sexual immoralities, how should we understand them? And let me introduce you two definitions here in the most common way. First word is adultery. That should be included in the, form, uh, in the term immorality. Uh, adultery is sexual intercourse between a married person and a person who is not his or her spouse. Second, fornication is sexual intercourse between people not married to each other. So we're talking about like, I think another way is like premarital sex. That's, that's an easier way to understand. So there's adultery when people have sexual intercourse outside the context of marriage, and people prior to the, uh, to the covenant of marriage and when they um, are engaged in sexual intercourse, those things. These two things fall under the category of sexual immorality, which Paul talks about. The word immorality in the Greek language is the word porneo. Pornea or porneo. You guys know, obviously, that we're, we're familiar with that term, where we get pornography, and that's the only word I could think of. <laughs> but we, we, we are talking about immorality. We're talking about perversion. We're talking about perversion. Meaning, what God had ordained, somewhere along the line, man has corrupted, man has perverted. And that's how we deem immorality. So, porneo has a notion embedded in that there was some kind of manly decision involved. There's a some way in form that man has discerned, you know what, I think I got it. Whether that be what God had ordained or commanded is less important, or you know what, or there's a completely disregarding of what God had ordained for us. So you understand why adultery, right? What does that do? Because when you bond physically with one person and you go out and do that with another, you create bonds beyond physical bond. You commit to and grant access to the person when such is reserved for only for your spouse. Most importantly, you disobey God's design of what sex was intended for. So adultery and fornication not only perverse your union with that person that you're covenanted with, but it also perverse your union with God as well. And it will not be the same. And it will absolutely affect the relationship 
that you ought to have with God. In a research a couple weeks ago, um, I wanted to kind of like research for data. I wanted to understand like just how common is this? So I, I, I researched um, through secular uh, poll or data research company and as well as Christian. So, and these are the numbers that I found. Um, maybe these, are, these may not be accurate or, or congruent with all the way across the board, but on average, I think these are very reasonable and acceptable. The number of sexual infidelity happening in the marital, among all married couples, numbers suggest that 15 to 20%. I don't know about you, but that number is uncomfortably high for me. And they say, this is a surprising fact, about only the 50% of the actual occurrences are reported through these data. Mathematically, I don't know, but I think it's safe to, or we should be comfortably project that number of 15 to 20% should be bumped up to somewhere close to 30%. It's not hitting some of you guys just yet. That means almost one out of three married couples are experiencing or engaged in sexual infidelity. We have about 40, 50 people in here. You guys should be doing the math. Pretty scary. It's alarming, isn't it? Now, because I think also biblically speaking, premarital sex technically falls under the category of sexual immorality, and these are the numbers that I've found. By age 44, unmarried people, 99% of them had had sex. That's a long time, and they're unmarried, so 99% of the people. By 20, 77% of men and women had had sex. 75% of people had had premarital sex. That's incredible. For Christians, this is now specifically in the Christian context, all right? According to the Gospel Coalition, 42% of unmarried evangelicals ages between 18 and 29 are currently in a sexual relationship compared to 52% of everyone else. So it's only 52% to 42%, meaning a lot of Christians are engaged in premarital sex as well. And when interviewed, the frequent uh, or, or the common, uh, the, just how common these occurrences are, 33% of evangelical Christians says always. 24% sometimes, 10% rarely, 32% never. All that to say, for me, I think there's a little difficulty in accepting just how seriously or how do we perceive the biblical command of preserving ourselves or how do we, how well do we understand what sexual intimacy is conveyed per the Old Testament and the New Testament. I think there's only one way to explain that there either there's we're not taking God's command seriously, or we are compartmentalizing what God sees and how we view this act of sex. Let me explain why 
that may be. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, what took place in the Garden of Eden. Remember, this is a place called pleasure. This is a place called delight. Hey guys, Irvine's nice. Yeah? Cerritos is nice. Chino Hills is amazing. The Inland Empire is amazing. But Garden of Eden was literally called pleasure. In that perfect place, in the place that God had created, and he says to Adam, you could have everything in this garden. And I have literally given you dominion. I have given you the rulership of every other created animal and being in this place. But there's one rule, one thing that you must not do. God said, off, no off limits. There's only one thing. And what does Adam and Eve choose to do in that moment? of glorious pleasure, endless access to all of God's creation. And no, we're not here to argue, was it Adam's fault or Eve's fault? No, that's, that's, that's pupusam all day long. That, you guys fight at home about that. But we know, right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. No, I know, I know. I'm so sorry, honey. No, I'm, I'm no, no, no. But in that moment, Adam and Eve, let's put them together. Adam and Eve said, you know what? Why? They questioned in that moment the goodness of God. You know what the argument between the serpent and Adam, you know what that was about? Serpent kept saying, why do you think that this is everything? And he planted the possibility of there is a chance that God is holding out on you, man. I don't think God's being truthful with you. You know what that's saying? Why should you trust God? How do you know? And he says, you can be just like God. To me, that's secondary. It began with questioning of God's goodness and God's provision. In that, well, I don't have to listen to him. I could be my own boss. I will call my own shots. It's not, it's not like, let me do something more pleasurable. That's not the genesis of sin. The genesis of sin is, I am willing to go outside the parameters of God had given me. That's what it is. In that, God is no longer the authority of your life. In that, God is no longer the rule setter. He's no longer the one setting the boundaries. Guess what? You are sitting at the seat of the throne, and you dictate the terms. What happened, what happened in the Garden of Eden, it's not immorality. The fallenness of man began with idolatry because it lessened the position and the word of God, and the man elevated his decision and his words and his status. I will dictate the terms. All of this to say, now I'm going back to sexual immorality. What God has said, hey, this act, make sure it's between man and woman in the context of marriage. But when we, when you and I continue to put
push away the boundaries, when, we, when you and I continue to do everything that we can to hazy the lines of God's commands for us, then we commit the sin, not only the sexual immorality, we commit the sin of idolatry. We are no longer saying, God, your word matters above anyone else's. Is this making sense? How do we deem? What other things are there? The word immorality, how, just how wide does that term, uh, inc- what kind of other, acti- are there, is it just adultery? Is it just fornication? What else is there? Could there be other forms of sexual immorality? I think so. I think what happens I think like pornography, I think obviously that we get the word immorality, that pornography is there, right? So a lot of people think like, well, well that, that's going to stop. I, I'm, I'm doing this just because like I'm single, just, just because like I, I have needs, like this is one way. No, a lot of men, a lot of people think, well, that's going to stop once I get married. Does that really stop? Does the struggle really stop? Does like wandering and exploring, does that really stop? I think just the prevalence of the temptations and the reality of the, what you and I have been exposed to, there's real danger every single day, every single moment, every single hour out there if you and I are not careful. And some of us that are not married, like, well, as long as we're not, like, having sex, we're like, well, I'm not really, you know. Well, does the Bible categorize their distinctions? As far as I'm concerned, The Bible does not distinguish the differences. The message is clear still. Preserve your bodies. Honor your bodies. You're at Jesus's temple. You're God's temple. The temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Honor your body because that is honoring God. This is why I said earlier, at the very beginning of this sermon, that your belief and attitude towards sex is precisely your attitude towards and belief about God. My submission to you this morning is quite simple. How do you view the Word of God? How do you read and view what is conveyed in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? How do you reconcile the realities of what you face, I think seemingly temptations out there, And how hard, what are we doing to make sure that we're not falling into, we're not giving into making sure that we prioritize our preferences, what our bodies crave? Or are we willing to submit ourselves under the leading of the Holy Spirit? Saying, God, help me. I know it's difficult, but God, help me to preserve all that I am for you. And for those that are married, This should serve as a necessary reminder that our body belongs to our spouses. Amen? Three things that we should do. And even 
maybe some of us have not been on this journey of being preserved for the Lord or being consecrated by the Lord. Maybe perhaps today can mark the day we say, God, I, I didn't realize that this was this serious. God, maybe the path that I've been walking on has been defined and paved by me. And God, would you allow me to be placed on this road? And for some of you guys that are not yet married and you have lived in, 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 in the ways of your flesh and you have been rather like free and, and loose in terms of engaging in these acts, and I, my, my prayer for you, my submission to you is that can you be drawn to the Lord and would you allow God to reveal himself to you? And what's so amazing about God is that there, there's not greater shame. Who you are and how you are perceived by the eyes, in the eyes of God does not change. But it does come with the recognition that it's like, God, this is, the, this is what I've done. God, would you come into my life? So first, it begins with confession. It's a place where you speak out and you agree with what God is saying. Say, I'm sorry. Second, you repent. And if you had said sorry, and the next step is, say, God, help me to turn away from the ways that I've been living. And God, bring me back to you. Restore me onto your ways, God. Place me on a brand new path. That's what you should do. Third is that you stay committed to the journey of being consecrated before the Lord, being faithful in your marriage, not exploring, not, not, not actively pursuing any, anything outside the marital union that God has given to you. And we need to fight. Make sure that you do not neglect the fight. Now that you are, I, I'm not even going to say like, are there temptations? Like you may say, well, Scott, I don't ever, whatever, like that's your problem, man. I don't, my marriage is good. You know, I'm good. My wife and I, I'm just saying. I think the Bible is very repetitive in this sin because just how common this is. You know, in the past four weeks, guys, two pastors in my own ministry circle have been removed from the office. I think it's just, again, I think, again, reminded, like I kept asking, God, is it my age? Is it because I'm old now? Or is it like, is it because the times have changed? Like these are common occurrences. I'm saying that to convey to you again, like this is a real issue. And I mean, God forbid, would you ever want to like, like when you guys look at me, you guys should be praying for me. You guys, are you guys praying for me? See, you're not, see? <laughs> you, you guys should. And I want all of us to be committed to the journey of, like, we got to fight. You know what? You know, I, can I, I, know, I didn't clear with my wife. I said, honey, what if this happens to me? Oh, honey, I'm just saying statistically, this could be a reality for me. Like, what guarantee is there that, you know, it hasn't happened yet. Like, I'm not, I know, like, I'm not handsome, but for whatever reasons, if this were to happen. And I just confessed to her, said, honey, I don't, like, I don't know. How do, how do I know that I'm strong enough? 
And I like wrestled with that, I think too long for, I, I think she got uncomfortable with that. I was like, you still talking about this? And then God led me to um, Joseph's account in the book of Genesis, Potiphar's wife, when literally like his boss's wife came naked, threw herself, and Joseph just like ran, right? It's like, that's what you should do. I was like, God, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just run. Another pastor friend of mine told me a story where he had a church member. Joseph incident literally happened to him. He's a younger man living in the apartment complex. And an older woman, older member of the church, same church, literally one came, rang the doorbell to his house, and exposed herself. I know. Oh, my God. I know, right? And that man, that friend, my friend's uh, church member said, literally said, in Jesus' name, and shut the door. <laughs> and when I heard that story, I said, God, give me the courage. I want to have that kind of faith. <laughs> when a woman comes to me saying, practically throwing herself at me, say, God, give me the faith like that. Not even Joseph. Like that church member, God, give me the faith. To have the audacity to say in Jesus' name. You know what that requires? Fear of God. Fear of God is needed. And a little bit of fear of your wife. Amen. Amen. I know. Come on, somebody. And I think that's so necessary. We need more men and women to have the audacity to say, you know what? I will not compromise on this. I won't, don't, don't even distance these stories farther away from you. Because as you get older, if anything, it's becoming a closer reality for you. It has nothing to do with their personality. It has nothing to do with their wealth. It has nothing to do with their, you know, how, whatever. But it has everything to do with the brokenness and the fallenness of humanity. And I'll tell you what, it is a reality. Remember, one out of every three couples... 70-80% of all singles, we struggle with this aspect. In Jesus' name, when temptations come, every other temptations, I would be inclined to say fight it. Get better at fighting. When it comes to sexual temptations, you know what my advice to you is? Run. Flee. Paul affirms that as well. He says, flee immorality. Don't be in the same room. Don't even engage even a little bit. The moment you engage, it's quicksand. It's, what is that, mud, swamp. You're only going to get, you're only going to sink deeper the harder you fight. You do not fight sexual temptations. You flee. There's no gradually cutting off. You're gradually getting better. Of all the things, this one completely set absolute boundaries for yourself. Does that make sense, guys? I know. It, it's heavy stuff this morning. A lot of stuff. But I really feel the need to convey this truth to you. And I want you to live not in shame, not in guilt, not in confusion, 
but we long for being made holy day by day in his presence. Let me get the worship team to come on up.